0: Good morning, and um, it's Josh. It's J- okay, so Maddie is due any moment. Maybe, maybe today. What? Yeah. Early, early, late. All right. Good. So this. Is... <laughs> hey, after that fiasco we had last month, you know, where he was gone for, I think during that month he was gone for eight weeks somehow. It seems that way when he's not here, doesn't it? All right. So, well, I want... What? Who said yes? So, first, I just want to begin by expressing uh, appreciation for all the support that I received the last uh, few weeks here due to my father's passing. Very much appreciated. Thank you for the, the prayers, the cards, the words of sympathy, the visits at the church, the attendance at the graveside service, and so on all very meaningful. Our family's doing well. Tom's twin, Tammy, is back in California. Uh, Amy, another sister, returned to Mexico. Kathy, yet another sister, returned to, to Virginia. And Tom and his family are headed back to Africa tomorrow. And uh, my mom seems to be doing pretty well through all of this. I'm only a quarter mile down the road from her, so I'll be able to um, check in on her once every three or four months or so. so. <laughs> All part of being the good son that I am. So So, uh, we have uh, some friends here this morning, Ken and Brenda Ferry, all the way from Evansville. Welcome today. I think they visited before. Um, Yesterday was our 50th high school class reunion, which um, they came back for, and Brenda was a classmate, as was Gary Otis. And we have Bob Gregg, who's also here. He's from Baltimore. He came back for the class reunion. So good to have Bob. and. Ken and, Ken and Brenda were part of the church in Decatur, and I think um, of the many weddings that I've officiated over the years, they were the second wedding that I did, and um, I don't remember much about it, just that we were in this old church, and you said we had to replace the carpet before we <laughs> had the wedding. I remember that, so it's good to have them here this morning, and um, just to honor you guys for having the award, well, you've come a long way, and what, um, what would you like for me to preach on today? It's whatever subject. Corinthians 13. What? First Corinthians 13? The we said you couldn't put in wedding. Did I say that? Actually, that's not what I prepared today, so I can't do it. So, All right. So anyway, just real quick about the uh, reunion. It was amazing because I get there and everybody is older and, than I was. And um, I had not aged. It, the guys had all lost their hair. I had not lost any hair. And... People were fatter. I had not gained any weight. And um, I I do have to tell you, just uh, humor me for a moment. I do have to, I think you'll like this. A true story. I think it was the 15th year reunion. I hadn't been to one um, after, before that. It was the first one I went back to. And uh, the MC, one of the classmates, was doing a bunch of jokes about fellow classmates. Some of them were a little off-collar. But he went on and on, picking on a number of folks. And then... He said, okay, now it's time for the meal, and we're getting um, ready for that, and we have one of our classmates who became a pastor, and he's going, to, he's going to pray for the food. And then he announced my name, and everybody thought he was still joking, and everybody started laughing. <laughs> 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 so, yeah, go figure. So it was, uh, it was a little weird. and. And um, I was already irritated by the raunchy jokes, so I worked a way into my prayer about bringing condemnation and judgment and conviction <laughs> on classmates who were not following the Lord. So anyway, I have not been asked to pray since. So, All right, this morning we continue with our survey of the four major schools of interpreting the prophecies in Revelation. So if you missed last week, I just encourage you to catch that message um, because it is a significant part of the discussion. So here are those four major schools. We have preterism, historicism, futurism, and idealism. And um, though there are wide differences here, it's not entirely unusual to find some overlap between them. Uh, areas where two or more, maybe even all four, will share some areas of agreement. And there are within each of the four a wide variety, a wide variety of different opinions and positions as well. Uh, We covered preterism during the second half of last Sunday's sermon, so today our attention is going to be pretty much occupied uh, with the other three. But before we get into the details, it might be helpful just to begin with a brief overview of each, So we'll start with a quick review of preterism. Um, The word preteris is a Latin word that refers to the past, and so this view holds that either all of the prophecies in Revelation, or at least a bulk of them, have already been fulfilled. Namely, in the first century, during the lifetime of the original readers, and the original readers being those seven churches that the book was written for. And they were all fulfilled during a relatively short period of time, uh, about three to five years. The events were in the future for them when they first read Revelation, but they are, of course, in the past for us uh, now. The purpose of the prophecies is to show them, again, these seven churches uh, that are mentioned in chapters 2 and 3, how God is about to bring judgment on those who are persecuting them and other believers. And so by taking a a liberal or more free approach to the symbolism, a preterist will attempt to show that all of the judgments in Revelation are referring to a war in Jerusalem between the Romans and the Jews, which ended in the destruction of that city in 70 AD. And this massive destruction of the holy city, it was bloody, it was violent, it was decisive, and it was devastating. And for the Jewish people at that time, the fall of Jerusalem truly was an apocalypse. This apocalypse, predicted by Jesus himself, was nothing less than a manifestation of God's wrath. And to accomplish this, God used the Roman armies. The Jewish people and their leaders were punished for rejecting Christ, crucifying him, and persecuting Christ's followers. So last week, we spent time looking at a number of the reasons why some people subscribe to this view and some reasons why others uh, do not find it convincing. All right. Unlike preterism, which sees the prophecies and revelation being fulfilled during a three to five year period, the historical view sees the book unfolding through uh, a very long period of time drawn out over the course of many centuries. The events described paint a picture of the successive ages of the church. Some prophecies were fulfilled during the time of the original readers. Other prophecies were fulfilled in the centuries that immediately followed. Many were fulfilled later on during the time of the Reformation, and some are yet to be fulfilled. And this view is quite popular during the Reformation and the the decades that followed, but it actually enjoys very few supporters today. The futuristic view is the one that we are the most familiar with. This is the default position for most Christians in modern times, and that's because it's the one that everyone has had the most exposure to. Essentially, it claims that everything after chapter 3 is yet to be fulfilled. And so the judgments and the rise of the Antichrist and the fall of Babylon and so on will transpire in a relatively short period, a relatively short period of time, right before Christ returns uh, again in the future. And, and um, this, um, this is what sets it apart from the other three views. All right, and finally we have idealism, which takes a completely different approach. It sees Revelation as setting forth timeless truths concerning the cosmic battle between light and darkness, good and evil, Christ and the devil." Kingdoms in conflict. According to this school of thought, Revelation doesn't offer any predictions about any events, past, present, or future. In the end, there is, of course, the ultimate triumph of God's kingdom, but the seals and the trumpets and the bulls of wrath and the rise of the beast and the fall of Babylon and so on simply describe in highly symbolic language the ongoing conflict in every generation between the kingdom of God and the domain of Satan. And, these prophecies simply, simply, and the prophecies in Revelation simply illustrate this conflict. They aren't really predictions. Idealism pretty much interprets the book of Revelation as an allegory. It doesn't get bogged down into the details. It simply looks for these larger lessons that apply to all Christians everywhere at all times. So that's a quick overview or summary of the four different philosophies or approaches that students of Revelation have taken over the centuries. Hopefully, you can appreciate the value of having a basic familiarity with these. Uh, We can't really appreciate uh, why so many people interpret the prophecies and revelations so differently unless we have a basic understanding of the philosophies that drive those differences. So we might think of these four here as starting points. They become kind of like the filter through which one reads and processes every verse in every chapter. So a couple more words about preterism before we spend time on the other three. During the uh, Q&A last week, someone asked about commentaries written from a uh, preterist perspective. And so I have uh, just a a few here to share with you. We have um, David Chilton is sort of like the preterist guru of, of, um, uh, of the last... Um, decades or so here. He wrote a book titled The Days of Vengeance, an exposition of Revelation, and um, other preterist authors refer to it a lot. It is out of print, but you can buy a used copy of it um, off of Amazon for $249. <laughs> um, so, to appreciate where he is coming from, you have to have some grasp of his whole theological package. Chilton, who died 25 years ago, was one of the movers and shakers of the Reconstruction movement, which held to something known as Dominion theology. I think a number of you are familiar with this stuff. And even though it's not that much of a thing as it was 34 years ago, it's still around. We should talk about it at some point, and uh, maybe I can get Denny involved in that. Maybe we could do a debate. Like you could take, you could be for it, and I could be against it, or something. We go back. All right, we'll switch. We'll switch. <laughs> I don't know how to defend it, but... (laughs) All right, a more popular author these days um, is uh, who's written several books on the topic of Revelation from the Preterist perspective is Kenneth Gentry. And um, this is just one of them. According to him, Revelation is a forensic drama that presents God's divorce decree against Israel as he takes a new bride, the Christian church. And... um, He has several books. He also has a two-volume commentary on Revelation that is due to be released any day, which will be over 2,000 pages long. And then we have this one that I referred to briefly last week, titled Last Day's Madness by Gary DeMar. This isn't so much a commentary, but a reaction, a somewhat caustic reaction, to some of the craziness promoted by a number of futurists. And I actually have this book, or had it, I lost it. And then I found it this past Wednesday in the church library. So how did that happen? And then this one, written by John Shutt's brother-in-law, right? This is your brother-in-law. And um, do I pronounce this Loper? 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 Richard Loper, titled Revelation, Kick at the Darkness Till It Bleeds Daylight. And this one is also written from a preterist viewpoint. All right, so let's now move on to the other three views. Everybody ready? Jump into this. Hopefully, this will be fun, Um, and for various reasons, these other three views won't require as much time to explain. So next is historicism. This one was widely popular during the Reformation, when many were claiming that the events in Revelation were being fulfilled right before their eyes, and it continued to be somewhat popular for the next two or 300 years, but it has, for the most part, uh, passed on from the scene here in modern days. The historical view sees the book of Revelation unfolding through it again a long period of time over the course of centuries. Essentially, Revelation is a pre-written record of the course of history from the time John wrote it to the end of the world. And some actually claim that it starts not with John when he wrote it, but goes all the way back to Adam. So like preterism, historicism actually relies on a very liberal or free approach to the symbolism in John's John's visions. And this is required to make the events described in Revelation correspond to events in world history. So historicism, more than any of the other views, suffers from a lack of consensus among its advocates. Um, Students of it are all over the place when it comes to matching up prophecies to world events through history. The whole approach, when you think about it, just tends to be very fluid because the landscape keeps changing due to the passage of time. So, for instance, during the Reformation, everything was about the Church of Rome. Uh, The Catholic Church was the great prostitute in chapter 19, and the Pope was the Antichrist in chapter 13. And the oppression people suffered in Revelation was a reference to the Catholic Church inflicting man-made traditions that violated God's grace. And all the references in Revelation to persecution is about how the Catholic Church hunted down and persecuted the reformers, and so on. And all this made sense to them at the time. it's easy to visualize that. And so they saw themselves living in the last days. But You know, several hundred years now has transpired since then. And uh, take this method of interpretation and now just jump ahead to, say, the early 1900s. Well, a historicist would now be looking for other things in Revelation, something like the Enlightenment or modern industrialization or the discovery of America or the rise of Islam or Mormonism. A hundred years later, uh, the reader would be looking for World War II and World War uh, World War One and World War II in the prophecies of Revelation, and a hundred years from now, a historicist would be looking for World War Three, and maybe World War Four. The point is, as centuries go by, everything keeps moving; the landscape just keeps changing. So, what kind of weapons do you think that we'll be using in World War Three? Be pretty bad. But somebody has noted that whatever, we may not know what those weapons are, but we do know what weapons will be used in World War IV. Those weapons will be sticks and stones. Yeah. (laughs) Anyway, I always thought that was kind of novel. So interpreters who subscribe to the historical view are often forced to find clever ways to make new world events fulfill certain prophecies and revelation. Everyone follow that so far? So the origins and history of this view is somewhat interesting. We find elements of it as early as the 9th century, and then it gained more traction in the 12th century under a Catholic theologian named Joachim, who developed it as a whole system. And the Franciscans, a Catholic order, used his system of interpretation to conclude that the beast in Revelation 13 was the papacy, Okay. All that business about the Pope being the Antichrist started with a Catholic order. Isn't that interesting? The Franciscans, of course, had their own issues with the Roman Church, so it's not entirely surprising, but still kind of interesting. Later on, this identifying the Pope with the Antichrist in chapter 13 helped to galvanize the Reformers and their resistance to Rome. Now, noteworthy names of, this, of the past, um, noteworthy names of... Uh, from the past who have subscribed to historicism have included John Huss, John Wycliffe, William Tyndale, Martin Luther, John Calvin, John Knox, Isaac Newton, uh, Spurgeon, Charles Finney, uh, George Whitfield, Jonathan Edwards, Matthew Henry, and more. Famous church leaders of long ago, none of whom were fans, of course, of the Catholic Church. Now today, however, the only ones who seem to be into historicism are the Seventh-day Adventists, and they have developed their own version of it. So let me give you a sample of how students of the historical view would handle some of the content in Revelation. Take the first set of judgments, the opening of the seven seals in chapters 6 through 7. Okay? They, from this perspective, are usually identified with the barbarian invasions that brought down the Roman Empire in the West. The next set of judgments, the sounding of the seven trumpets, are typically applied to the fall of the Roman Empire in the East. Specifically, the scorpion-tailed locusts, identified with the fifth trumpet, are Mohammed's armies of Arabs that weakened the empire in the 7th century. And the serpent-tailed horses that immediately follow in the sixth trumpet are the Turks who attacked the capital city, Constantinople, in the 11th century, which was a major blow. So, like anything, it comes down to whether you find these connections convincing. But even if you do, other prophecies in Revelation are a bit harder to make fit. The system tends to be hit and miss. One critic has accused um, Historicists of setting the reader of Revelation, quote, "...afloat upon a boundless ocean of conjecture and fancy without rudder or compass." (laughs) Um, And this helps explain why it has diminished in the, in, um, the past century or so. All right, now for the futuristic view, the one we are, of course, the most familiar with, We see it in Christian novels, Christian movies, Christian songs, non-Christian literature, countless sermons, and it enjoys a support from a number of respected evangelical scholars as well. In fact, futurism has so dominated modern Christianity that most Christians and virtually all non-Christians are not even aware of the other three schools of thought. It grew in popularity in the 1800s under the influence of somebody we've talked about a few times in the past, John Nelson Darby, who claimed that the rapture will take place seven years before the return of Christ. And his teachings ignited a renewed interest in the events of the last days, and greatly influenced by this was Cyrus Schofield, who produced the Schofield Study Bible. And this study Bible, one of the first of its kind, published in the early 1900s, helped to solidify this view about the rapture among clergy and laymen alike, and pushed discussions about the end times to the forefront. And all of this and more contributed to futurism's popularity. And in recent times, well, as you know, there's just no shortage of paperback books written from this particular perspective. Essentially, Futurist proposes that everything after chapter 3 is yet to be fulfilled. All of the prophecies in Revelation are about events that will occur in the future. As with the other views, a lot of different positions and interpretations can be found among this school, among futurists. And indeed, we have two major camps, usually referred to as dispensational and classical. And there are a number of differences between these two, but the one that seems to stand out the most has to do with the timing of the rapture. The rapture, of course, is when the dead in Christ will rise from their graves and those who are living will be caught up together with them in the clouds, raptured, to meet the Lord in the air. Now, ironically, Revelation doesn't say anything about the rapture. It is described in Paul's first letter to the Thessalonians. And so people would try to take what Paul wrote and see where in Revelation they can, you know, make it fit. Dispensationalists place the rapture before any of the judgments begin. They squeeze it into that chapter break between chapters 5 and 6. And so the events would transpire this way. Right before any of the judgments begin... Jesus returns in the clouds, not to the earth itself, but just returns in the clouds. The only ones who see him return are the saints. Upon seeing him, they are raptured up into heaven so that they will be spared the hardships of all the judgments that are about to follow, commonly referred to as the tribulation. Jesus will then return again later, which, is, which was what we find in chapter 19. And at that time, he will be visible to everybody and will return to the earth with his followers. And this is the dispensational view of the rapture made popular by Darby back about 200 years ago. Those who belong to the classical school, however, see only one return of Jesus, the one spoken of in chapter 19, and teach that this is when the rapture will occur. Another area where there are differences between, uh, uh, differences among futurists is the millennial kingdom in chapter 20, so you've heard these words before. There are amillennialists who believe that the thousand-year reign of Christ represents the church age, a period of time from Christ's ascension to his return. We are living in that now, according to them. There are post who teach that the church will eventually fulfill the great commission of evangelizing the world resulting in a thousand-year period of world peace where nations will adopt policies and laws that will reflect God's will and that most people, most of the population of the earth, will turn to Christianity. And when Jesus returns, he will return to a bride made ready. And there are premillennialists who claim that when Jesus returns, he will at that time become the world's king and rule over all the nations from his throne in Jerusalem for a thousand years. And after that, the devil will be allowed to gather Christ's enemies together for a final battle, the battle of Armageddon. Then comes the judgment day, followed by the creation, of the new heavens and the new earth. All right. I talked really fast. Everyone follow that so far? Let me do it again. (laughs) Faster. Then do the second time faster. All right. Just play it back again. All right. We'll listen to it. Just like the Beatles songs. Just play it backwards. I think you'll get it then. All right. So, throughout church history, each of these three views about the thousand year reign of Christ have enjoyed a season of popularity. In recent times, premillennialism has been the favorite. And all three views, of course, would allow for the number 1000 to be symbolic for a, a long period of time. And to clarify, I'm just summarizing the differences about the millennial kingdom among futurists. The discussion can can go in a completely different direction uh, if we're talking about the millennial kingdom with a preterist for instance. Now we should also note that futurists understand revelation to be chronologically continuous. Events described in the book are events that will happen in succession. This sets it apart from preterism that sees many of the judgments as referring to the same thing. Also futurists tend to be the most literal in their interpretations unless the symbolism is obvious, like giant locusts that look like horses with tails of scorpions. You know, when it's not obvious, the futurist will favor a literal meaning. And so, for instance, when we read that upon the sounding of the second trumpet, that a third of the living creatures in the sea died and a third of the ships were destroyed, a futurist will take all that on face value and not try to look for deeper meanings or symbolism. We should note that there are a number of times in Revelation where the meaning of some symbols are provided for us. The lampstands represent, who remembers? The lampstands represent the churches. The dragon represents the devil. The seven heads of the beast represent seven kings. The seven horns and seven eyes of the lamb represent the seven spirits of God sent out into the earth and so on. Revelation tells us what these symbols mean. And so based on this... Futurists tried to take a measured approach regarding the book's symbolism. That is, the symbols actually represent something. They aren't just fillers for an allegory, for instance. Uh, so take the hundred pound hailstones. You know, a futurist would say, well, it might actually be that a hundred pound hailstones. Um, or they might be a figure of speech for bombs or something else. But a futurist would not be inclined to say that the words hail, Stones falling from the sky is just a literary device used to d- to note God's judgment, and that the part about being a hundred pounds merely represents the intensity of the judgment. A futurist believes that there's something more concrete going on in that prophecy than something like that. So when you think about this, futurists are afforded a particular luxury that the others don't really have: the luxury of not. Um, pushing the symbolism too far. And this because, according to them, the prophecies in Revelation are about events that cannot be tested. They are yet to occur. And there's no way to verify or falsify such claims. And this can be both an advantage and a disadvantage. But either way, the futurist enjoys a certain level of comfort that the other views don't have. So take the prophecy in chapter 9 about a third of mankind being killed by an army consisting of 200 million soldiers. The language doesn't really suggest anything symbolic, at least on face value it sounds literal, and yet, quite frankly, it seems hard to imagine an army of that magnitude. I mean, that would be two-thirds of the entire population of the United States. That's quite an army. But a futurist can simply say that it will happen just as it says, someday, someday. Now, if students of futurism aren't guilty of pushing symbolism too far, many are nonetheless still guilty of reading too much into the text. And this can become quite maddening at times, and not so much with scholars, but of course with many TV preachers and popular fiction authors, and of course countless amateur end time enthusiasts, they just like to run with endless speculations and just run wild with them. And this is a common problem, which often ends up abusing the text itself. One obvious example, of course, is the beast in chapter 13. All kinds of things are read into that chapter that just are not there. But people will find all kinds of ways to say that it is. Based on certain speculations, Christians in the past have opposed social security numbers, computers, credit cards, or anything that contributes to a cashless society, barcodes, the UN, NATO, NAFTA, the European Union, treaties between nations, state-issued IDs, and more. It just goes on and on. Now, there may be reasons to oppose some of those things, but Revelation 13 wouldn't be one of them. Many futurists also take a lot of liberty with the, hunt, with the thousand-year reign of Christ, reading all sorts of things into that as well. Some of the things I've read, especially from uh, dispensationalists, claim that during this period, wild animals will be at peace with each other. The land will produce more crops. People will seldom get sick. And when they do, we we will experience widespread healing. The nation of Israel will will become prominent. There will be changes in the climate. The temple in Jerusalem will be rebuilt and inhabited by the Shekinah glory and more. Now, all this may be true. But none of that stuff is even alluded to, much less mentioned, in those three verses that talk about the Millennial Kingdom in chapter 20. Along this line, another problem is that every generation of futuristic interpreters has compared events occurring in their own lifetimes with the prophecies and revelations. This goes on and on and on, claiming that they themselves are living in the time of fulfillment. Been doing this now for a couple hundred years. And this newspaper exegesis has also been a major embarrassment. You know, all of these various problems have helped to drive many thinking Christians to either preterism or idealism. It's just left a bad taste in people's mouth. So let's now look at idealism, the last one here on our list. And it's also known by other names. Uh, you might refer to it as symbolic, allegorical, spiritual, non-literal, poetic, and so forth. So as you'll recall, it sees Revelation as setting forth these timeless truths consisting of a, or concerning this cosmic battle between light and darkness, good and evil, Christ and the devil. According to this school of thought, Revelation doesn't offer any predictions about any event, past, present, or future. All the vivid and scary and dramatic passages simply describe, in highly symbolic language, this ongoing conflict that we have in every generation between the kingdom of God and the dominion of Satan. So instead of getting back, bogged down in all the details, an idealist simply looks for these larger lessons that apply to all Christians everywhere at all times. Essentially, the message of Revelation consists of, first, a summons to live faithfully for Christ, also appeals to endure hardship and persecution. There is the promise that in the end, evil will be overthrown, and the assurance that God is in control of history. These are the points that are front and center that an idealist We'll just stick to, and nothing else about Revelation really matters all that much to them. Idealists have been, have had, uh, they have a very fluid approach to this book, and they're just content to see all sorts of possibilities. For instance, the conflicts and battles that we read about, well, that could be referring to spiritual warfare, or they could be referring to the persecution of Christians, or to international conflict in general. All of these scenarios, they've been experienced throughout the history of the church. The important thing, according to them, is that Christians must remain faithful. The beast in Revelation 13 is another example. It could refer to a satanically inspired political system that oppresses Christians, or to various religions hostile to Christianity, or to even a corrupt form of Christianity that persecutes genuine Christians. It could be all sorts of things. Idealists don't really care. What matters is the lesson. Only God is to be the object of our worship and total allegiance. And along that line, all the various judgments we read about from the seven seals, seven trumpets, and seven bowls of wrath. They depict some reality, famine, war, natural disaster, and so on that can be observed in history on a reoccurring basis as part of God's sovereign outworking of his purpose in history. But none of these things mentioned in Revelation refers to any specific event they are just vehicles used to bring us the lesson. God, and that is this. God is troubled by the sins of mankind and punishment is inevitable. therefore repent. So idealism, because of its emphasis, because it emphasizes timeless truths and lessons rather than events fulfilling prophecies, it enjoys a universal relevance. It apply, you know the lessons apply to everyone, from the original readers to those living today. And this is a big selling point for them. But again, the system is highly allegorical. In fact, an idealist could even claim that John didn't even have a vision. He is just using that as a literary device to convey these timeless truths to all Christians. And for that matter, it's not necessary that the book was actually intended for those seven churches named in chapters two and three. They too could just be characters in this allegory as well. The origin of idealism can be traced back to the allegorical system of hermeneutics promoted by the early church fathers who lived in Alexandria like Clement and Origen. And those who were part of the church history class will remember that Alexandria is known for spiritualizing scripture, looking for hidden and deeper meanings of a passage, any passage, rather than going with the plain meaning. And so this is where the roots go back to. It's uh, closely associated with amillennialism, the belief that we are now living in the, millen- in the millennial kingdom, um, that the thousand-year reign of Christ spoken of in chapter 20 just represents the church age. All right, following so far? Everyone still with me? <clears throat> okay, I'm, I'm like a third of the way, so I've got two-thirds more to go. We'll be, we'll be done by 3.30 easily. Whoops. <clears throat> I am a little worried that we're getting lost in the weeds, but we'll just keep plowing here. So let's move on now and consider a working example of the differences. And, we'll, and, um, and then we'll, we'll take a passage of Revelation. We'll do a side-by-side comparison and how it's interpreted by a preterist, a historicist, a futurist, and an idealist. And this should help to highlight the differences side-by-side. And then in conclusion, if there's still any energy left in the room, I'll take questions dealing with um, something that we covered either today or last Sunday. So to keep things moving, to keep things simple, I opted for something short and straightforward, one of the judgments of the seven trumpets. Um, Verse 7 of chapter 8, this would be the first judgment. The first angel sounded his trumpet, and there came hail and fire mixed with blood, and it was hurled down upon the earth. A third of the earth was burned up, a third of the trees were burned up, and all the green grass was burned up. So we'll start by showing how each of the four views understand what the trumpets themselves are all about, and then we'll zero in on their take on this particular passage here, this first trumpet. So to the preterists, as we've talked about, the sounding of the trumpets correspond to the disasters inflicted by the Romans on the Jews during the Jewish war that ended in the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD. God judged the Jews because, again, they rejected the Messiah, crucified him, persecuted his followers. In regards to this particular verse, some preterists argue that the trees and green grass represent the Jewish people. They refer, you know, this refers to the massive bloodshed and loss of life that they suffered in that war. And other preterists claim that the passage refers to actual vegetation in the land, vegetation that was destroyed in and around Jerusalem by the Romans. And actually, the Jewish historian Josephus even mentions this in one of his accounts. He writes how during that war, the Romans cut down all the trees in and around Jerusalem and destroyed all the gardens. So for the historical perspective, to them, or at least most of them, the seven trumpets refer to a series of invasions against the Roman Empire that eventually resulted in its downfall. The first trumpet in particular refers to the first of these military conflicts with the Goths, who at the beginning of the fifth century advanced upon the empire and Historians note that the Goths attacked Gaul, Spain, and Italy from the north, destroying and burning down everything in their path. So this kind of fits. Matthew Henry, himself a historicist, suggests something quite a bit different. He believes that the first trumpet describes calamities that fell upon the church in the early centuries, namely what he calls a storm of heresies. And here we might think of Arianism, Sabellianism, Nestorianism, Plagianism, and, and others. And that the trees and grass represent the clergy and the laity, respectively. Okay? Think that's pushing the symbolism? (laughs) So we've talked about all those heresies on Sunday mornings, right? Remember all those names? Futurism. Futurism. To the futurists, the trumpets represent calamities that unrepentant inhabitants of the earth will suffer during the coming tribulation period, shortly before the return of Christ. Regarding the first trumpet here in verse 8, Or verse 7, most futurists take it literally or mostly so. The part about the blood and fire that is mixed with the hail could be true. Uh, It could be a miracle due to the will of God. Or it could be referring like a figure speech to widespread lava being discharged from a series of volcanic eruptions. Red like blood falling from the sky like hail and it's all on fire. There are other possibilities as well. There's even something in meteorology known as blood rain, um, a very rare event that results from the water vapors containing a high level of red spores from a certain algae. Whatever, And it ha- actually occurs sometimes. Whatever the case, the judgment will be severe. Much of the earth will be destroyed, resulting in massive shortages of food and other essential resources. People will suffer. Hal Lindsay, some of you know that name, Um, Back in the 70s, 80s, he was very popular with, with the futuristic dispensational view. He believes that this verse refers to all of the ecological catastrophes resulting from a discharge of nuclear weapons, and or he suggests it could also be from air pollution resulting from driving automobiles. So upon that note, let's now consider the passage from the perspective of an idealist. To him... The catastrophes described by these seven trumpets are reminiscent of the plagues of Egypt and they occur symbolically in some form many times in history and in many different ways. They demonstrate God's displeasure with the sins of humanity and serve as a warning of the of worst things that are yet to come. The main thing is the lesson. Sinners must repent. But again, the judgment here in verse 7 does not refer to any specific event according to them. It simply represents one of the many hardships humanity suffers continually throughout history because of its sin. And all judgments, all hardships, are designed to bring people to repentance. Okay, so there you have it. It felt like I kind of moved that like a train, wrote a lot of information real fast. But after all of this, which of the four views do you find yourself leaning toward? Should I take a poll? <laughs> Should I take questions? I'm certainly no expert on this subject, like I mentioned last week, And but we do have a church library here that probably has answers. And um, we actually, we got a couple libraries. We have the one back there and then this whole room is like a library. Any questions, what we've covered? We have a few minutes. How many, glad, how many are glad that we're gonna be moving on to something different next week? <laughs> All right, so we will continue Revelation uh, after the beginning of next year. We're going to give it a sabbatical here for a while because we've been planning something for at least a year now. Uh, you will recall our series on the Pentateuch and how we dug into that and incorporated a number of different members of those teachings. Hopefully you have not forgot that series. So we're going to do something similar similar to that using the same format and um, next week, we're going to start something on basic apologetics, and it will um, run until the end of November, early December. It will include a short break, some short breaks along the way. And then we will eventually return to Revelation, and then we are going to work through the seven different exhortations given to the seven churches that are found in chapters two and three. All right. Anything? Yes. Gary? Since you asked- I'm very fluid. I've moved around probably from all of these views at one point. Even even regarding the rapture, even regarding the millennial kingdom, and so today I stand before you saying I don't have a view, and it gives me the opportunity of being pretty objective and being critical and a fan of all of them. But that's a, that's uh, not like a. I should run for I should run for office. I should run for office. <laughs> I would lean toward the futuristic view. I think, it has the less, I think it has the least problems. I don't like to push the symbolism too far, especially when Revelation shows that the symbolism actually corresponds to something. The lampstands actually represent this. You know, the, the dragon actually represents this. And so, futurism has the advantage, I believe, in showing direct correspondence to, this, to, to the prophecies and the symbolism. Denny, what's your favorite view? We can both run for office. You can be my vice president. I'll be your vice president. A go, we did that debate. Yeah. It took for you and I to get involved in it, work up enough enthusiasm <laughs> 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 Yeah. I had goaded him into um, uh, doing a debate on a Sunday night on millennialism versus premillennialism. And um, I thought it was kind of fun, but it was it took more work than any sermon I'd ever worked on and it, you it. Hal Lindsey, yeah, I had a cartoon putting him in with yeah, that whole, cartoon I paid you by yeah, <laughs> and I used it against him, <laughs> yeah, it was a cartoon, I think, about rapture practice, I had somebody on a, on a, on a trampoline that we were going to practice being raptured up, and, and so I had Denny's picture there with Hal Lindsey, and Salem Kurban and, you know, Jack Van Impey, and all those guys, and he was, he was unhappy. So we, he, went, he went into the bait. Yeah, he, was, he went into the bait all fired up against me. And you do not. Yeah, debating him is like, as Greg Weaver says, taking a knife to a gunfight. But he had like six guns that night because he was angry with me about that cartoon. I remember, I remember when people were upset with me. That I never forget. All right, anything else? Let's stand. I'm going to close with a benediction I've never used before. Just kidding. One I love, I've come to really love in this series. Revelation 1, 4 through 6, Grace and peace to you from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and has made us to be a kingdom and priest to serve his God and Father. To him be glory and power forever and ever. Amen. Amen. Upon those words, you are dismissed. Go in Christ's name, enjoy each other, and serve each other in love.